bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. This is another episode of the Bits and Pretzels podcast. I'm Bridget Wedling, Bits and Pretzels Editor-in-Chief, and I welcome you to the show. This week, I'm joined by one of the leading voices of the French startup ecosystem, Roxane Wartzer, the director at Station F. Station F is an accelerator based in Paris, one of the biggest startup campuses in the world, with over 1,000 startups under the roof. And for those of you who are struggling right now with the limitations, hurdles and challenges during the current coronavirus crisis, Roxanne has actually good news for you because she's convinced that there has never been a better time to grow your business as COVID pushes all of us to rethink old structures and lifestyles. And in our conversation, the Station F director shares best practices of how young and early stage companies can turn challenges into an advantage for their own business, from when's the right time to pivot a product to serve the changing market needs, to how to empower your team to get best performance, to how to build a culture of learning and discovery in your workplace. And most importantly, Roxanne thinks that these times offer an opportunity to rethink your company's cultures and values and work towards really creating a positive impact for the world. You know, people have been developing missions and visions for their for their businesses and having values, company values for quite a number of years. But I think this is the first time we're really seeing startups genuinely care about having a positive impact and not just being concerned with their revenue. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Roxanne, you're obviously one of the top figures of the French tech scene. You've built one of the world's biggest startup campuses with Station F with 1,000 startups and around 3,000 entrepreneurs. You have been a European Commission advisor. You manage a team of around 30 people. You are an angel investor. And today I want to talk with you about all of that and how you actually built uh, all of this, as well as how you look at the current situation of early stage startups in the middle of the current pandemic, of the current crisis, of the economic uncertainties we all have to deal uh, with in the startup ecosystem. And, you know, fiascos always present new opportunities for entrepreneurs. And we've seen that over the history of tech, uh, the dot-com bubble, which happened approximately 20 years ago, strengthened uh, big companies such as Amazon, uh, eBay, Google came out of uh, the last dot-com crisis. And Airbnb, Spotify, Uber, Dropbox, and Adyen, among others, they grew out of uh, the economic downturn of 2008. So would you say right now uh, there has never been a better time to start a startup? Or how do you look at the current situation specifically for young founders, startups in the early stages? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with what you said. Whenever there's a downturn, whenever there's a crisis, it, prevent, it, it creates incredible opportunities for entrepreneurs. And I think um, we've seen a lot of that already with uh, how they reacted to the crisis, some of the pivots that were made, um, the business strategies that changed. And I think we're going to continue to see that since obviously the crisis isn't over yet. Um, I think it definitely is probably going to give rise to a new kind of wave of incredible companies. Um, we've seen a lot of people kind of go after um, a lot of kind of remote working tools, redoing, you know, logistics and things like that, even, you know, solutions for health. Um, and then I think there's probably going to be a lot of really incredible opportunities also around the sectors that are probably the most negatively impacted. So maybe mm -hmm. areas like uh, tourism and travel that are still probably suffering immensely, events, 
events that are still suffering and even probably prop tech where we're probably going to see um, a whole new way of kind of using space that, that we weren't really uh, thinking about before. Right. So when you look at what's happening in the French entrepreneurial ecosystem, what areas do you expect the most innovation coming from moving forward? I think especially the areas that are suffering the most are the ones that we're really going to see real innovation come from because you can't continue doing business as it was before. Um, so those are the ones that I'm particularly excited about. Now, what we've actually seen, I think is probably going to be no shock to anybody, is that the areas... Um, the kind of all of the, the digital stuff that really took off during confinement and lockdown. So for example, I talked about remote working, but there's also a lot of e-commerce related stuff, a lot of kind of digital health, uh, you know, telemedicine and things like that. So these are all areas that we have seen already take off. Um, and a lot of companies have transitioned their solutions to kind of cater to these areas that saw a lot of growth uh, with coronavirus. This is probably no secret. Uh, we at Bits and Pretzels, we obviously have a huge audience of younger founders, early stage startups. And these are, you know, the companies that would also join uh, Station F. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, your perspective on, on, on their situation. So how do you look at what's happening in the early stages uh, right now? And how can founders prepare and benefit? So I think, I mean, I'm not trying to say coronavirus hasn't negatively impacted early stage companies, but I think they've definitely been much better off uh, than some of the later stage companies that we've seen. Mm -hmm. We actually did a study at Station F um, in June. It, it came out early June, uh, right after we came out of lockdown. We teamed up with 120 VC funds. And um, we actually discovered that a lot of the early stage companies, because they weren't so um, kind of revenue dependent, Uh, they were able to pivot very quickly. They were much more agile. They changed their businesses. They weren't impacted by the fact that, uh, you know, the customers maybe were slowing down or what have you. So we actually didn't see a lot of real negative impact uh, for the super early stage companies. So I'm talking about everything that's kind of like seed and pre-seed. Mm -hmm. um, things that are a little bit later towards the A and especially series B, where you're really starting to hit kind of the growth stage and you're very dependent on cash. Um, those are the companies that we have seen kind of suffer the most. And those are the ones that have benefited the most from all the government aids and a lot of the government support schemes actually targeted these companies, which I think makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you know, when you look at the DNA of the companies that that deal better with the current crisis than others, you know, besides the size or the funding amount, What's like the DNA of founders that thrive in this kind of crisis? Oh, that's such a good question. It's really hard to say because I think it really depends on, you know, I, I saw a lot of entrepreneurs in the first few weeks of lockdown um, that they didn't lose any time. Like people were just like, okay, we're in a crisis, but I've built something. It can probably be used for something, maybe not that initial mm -hmm. thing that it was built for. Um, so we had companies at Station F, like for example, we had some teams that had made uh, solutions that were supposed to help people queuing in restaurants and boutiques. Well, actually, all the boutiques and restaurants are closed, but they actually immediately saw an opportunity with deconfinement and the fact that people today, um, you know, they have to wait their turn to pick up a meal or to enter a store or what have you. So they immediately saw that opportunity. Uh, we had companies, for example, that um, they had, you know, 
delivery networks for restaurants and what have you. Well, those companies said there's a huge demand probably in hospitals. So we're going to be only delivering to hospitals. So we really saw companies kind of leveraging um, what they had built for potentially other needs. So I think probably the answer to your question is really, these are people who think very quickly, who don't waste any time, who are extremely agile um, and who aren't scared to kind of give something new a try. And so I think that's really what we we observe the most mm -hmm. of at Station F. Interesting. And, you know, what we've all seen over the last couple of months with working remotely, having meetings um, over a video call, ordering food in, ordering more online. We are all more digital right now. Um, but the question remains, how much of that, what we've achieved so far is going to continue moving forward? So how do you think about that? So I think a lot of it is here to stay. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, some of these habits, uh, people are probably in the long run, not going to go back to, you know, queuing in a supermarket as much. And you know, I think there's a lot of things that mm -hmm. they probably just realized how much easier it was. Um, maybe you're not actually going to go to the doctor's office every time you're going to start with a teleconsultation and then you're going to go. So I think some of these things are definitely here to stay. Now, the one that I'm actually um, a little bit hesitant about, I think there was a huge wave of people saying, oh, remote work and the future is being, you know, working at home and we're going to get rid of our office. Nice. And we've even seen a lot yeah. of the bigger tech companies say their, you know, employees aren't going to come back to work until summer of next year. But I, I think people actually there's some types of work that you just can't do remotely. Um, and mm -hmm. team cohesion is just not the same. And I think we've definitely observed it with a lot of our companies here on campus. Um, it's just very, very difficult to do everything 100% remote. So I think probably right. we're going to see um, maybe that in the long term take a little bit less of a kind of drastic form. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think the hybrid model that everybody seems to kind of be talking about really seems to be something that I'm much more favorable for. What do you think is specifically needed for, for startups right now? I mean, obviously they are like agile, flexible, they pivot their product, but what do you think is their need right now? Um, you know, I'm not sure that the needs have really changed so much, to be perfectly honest with you. I think probably number one pain point is always going to be talent. And the talent situation has really changed. Uh, the fact that everybody's working remotely actually means that companies based in France can potentially hire some of the top people in other markets. Um, and those people are willing to not relocate, but they can actually work for that company from where they are. So I think it's actually kind of re... Uh, designed some of the, the the things that were already there, but I think the needs are inherently still the same. And actually something I also noticed during confinement that was really impressive was because it was a health-related crisis, um, a lot of companies just started giving away their software and solutions for free. And mm -hmm. it just seemed like the absolute best time to build something. It was just like, you could get your hands on tons of amazing softwares that were free. Um, you could reach out to people that were willing to do consulting for free. Uh, you had all these experts offering all kinds of services. So really, I just thought like, this is an excellent, excellent time to, to try something and to launch something new. You know, when you look at the current situation, it's obviously a situation where many people, uh, such as Mark Andreessen, and you know, you also wrote about this in one of your essays, are thinking about the bigger picture um, and you know the time, the pace of innovation. Elon Musk talks about this all the time um, because you know it's 
the whole is society, politics, uh, but also entrepreneurs and companies were really unprepared uh, for the coronavirus pandemic, uh, despite many major warnings. Uh, what do you think entrepreneurs should focus on right now to, to probably pace up the speed of innovation and build a better future? Well, how can I disagree with Mark? I mean, <laughs> what he wrote is so compelling. Um, he's definitely right in that we lacked, uh, and we still do in so many ways. So you can already see yeah. all of these areas that need to be addressed. And so there's a lot of kind of opportunities to go after. Um, that being said, I do think that we're seeing an, an incredible amount of consciousness um, around everything that's really kind of values-driven innovation. I think Uh, with confinement, with lockdown, people also became very aware of, well, you know, now we're not consuming as much energy because those buildings are shut, or maybe we're not producing so mm -hmm. much waste because people are, I don't know, not eating lunch in their office every day. Or I, I just, we've started to become aware right. of a lot of these things. And we're starting to see mm -hmm. now a lot of companies become much, much more conscious um, than they were pre-COVID of everything that's related to values. And so when I say values, I mean specifically topics that will be uh, sustainability and diversity related. I think diversity probably dates, you know, for the past couple of years uh, with a number of different kind of movements that we've seen. But I think sustainability has also really come to the forefront. And people are now realizing that they need to make actually sustainable businesses um, something that's actually solving a real problem. And so that's something that we probably weren't as conscious of definitely people were doing it, but they weren't as conscious and intentional about it before. Yeah. And I also think about, you know, the mission of, of a company. I, I think if you have all your employees or many of your employees, your coworkers being remote, it's really important to, to have a strong mission, to build a team, to push innovation forward, to push your business forward, to expand your business. And if you don't have that, if you don't have like core values or like a vision for what you want to achieve beyond bringing in profits or revenue, I think it's it's going to be really difficult for you yeah. uh, in this kind of situation. I think, right? yeah, the, I mean, those are all things that we've kind of been, you know, people have been developing missions and visions for their, for their businesses and having values, company values for quite a number of years. But I think this is the first time we're really seeing startups genuinely care about having a positive impact and not just being concerned with their revenue. Um, even though, you know, a lot of the time company values go beyond obviously generating revenue, they're There was kind of a sense that, well, some of that's just surface for, in the big scheme of things, just creating revenue. And now we're really seeing some, a very big transition with a lot of companies um, really putting values up there with revenue. Why do you think that is? I think it's, um, I think it's because we're actually, I mean, this was, a, this was a very different crisis than ones we've seen in the past. This one actually impacted health, impacted people's livelihood, um, impacted people's well-being. And I think it has given us really a, a consciousness of how important those elements are in our life. Um, and I think mm -hmm. to a certain extent, they were taken for granted before. <laughs> right. Interesting. You know, obviously, I want to talk with you a little bit about um, setting up Station F um, as well um, and, you know, give people in our audience an idea of what, you know, you are working on uh, there, how they can apply, how can they contribute. So so talk about the philosophy behind the creation of such a mega campus uh, such as Station F. What are you doing in there? What's the vision? So we, we opened in 2017, but actually the project, uh, the initial ideas for the project had started around 2013, 2014, when the French ecosystem looked nothing like what it looks today, actually 
the, the world looked mm-hmm. nothing like it was pre-Brexit, pre-Donald Trump, like if people can still remember what that world looks like. Um, and the French ecosystem was actually almost invisible to people who were not based in France. A lot of foreign um, companies and investors, you know, when they would look at Europe, they would see the London ecosystem, probably Berlin, maybe the Nordics. Right. They would think nothing is going on in France. And people who would come to France mm-hmm. would have difficulty making sense of the ecosystem because of so many small and kind of scattered players. I, I remember I was talking while I, you know, I spent like five years in, in, in Silicon Valley and I was talking to a professor in Stanford um, who studied, who was like a professional professor in French literature. Um, we had a lot of conversations about what happened in the past. And, you know, at, at a point he said, Paris is intellectually dead <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, that's actually something, you know, it's always the, the French expats that are the ones that always think everything's impossible. Anyway, to go, to go back to the whole point of Station F, um, right. we, were, we were really trying to create kind of a response to that problem by making something mm-hmm. very big, very emblematic, but also that would really kind of federate and bring together all of the, the smaller actors of the local ecosystem. Um, and so the, the idea behind Station F is really to put everything that a young company needs when it gets started. So obviously these are, we're talking about the really early stage companies that are resource strapped, um, that they don't have any time to waste. We wanted to put everything that they need right here on campus. So they don't have to waste their time, you know, going and mm. getting, I don't know, negotiating Amazon credits or finding housing for their employees or dealing with, you know, uh, the French tax authority. I don't know what it is. We wanted to just put everything right here on campus. And so that's exactly what we did. So station F, um, for people who haven't been here, it's a huge building, 34,000 square meters, but we actually have an, a housing extension. So the entire, uh, real estate, um, component of it is over 50,000 square meters today. And we have 30 different public services, you know, tax authority, visas, public funding, uh, you name it. If it's a public authority that works with startups, they're based at Station F. We have 30 different mm-hmm. programs. So people apply to a program like they would apply to a master's degree at a university. So you can go in the FinTech program, the fashion tech program. And these are many of them are done with uh, different partners that can be corporates, universities, or other startup organizations. And then we have a whole bunch of other resources. So Google, Apple, Amazon have uh, an OVH. They have offices on campus. We have a maker space. So really, this is the, the philosophy was for those companies just starting out, you can get started at Station F very relatively easily. Right. And then you go mm-hmm. off and build your company elsewhere after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you've also managed to create a community of entrepreneurs, VC funds, and big tech companies that work, share knowledge, and collaborate with you guys, Facebook, Ubisoft, Microsoft, and and plenty of others. Uh, they all run their own incubators from, from Station F. How did you manage to set up this network? Yeah, this was, uh, well, that was the whole concept. So in the beginning, we were thinking like, you know, um, what does it mean for a startup to come to Station F? What do they need? How does it work? So, I mean, definitely had to think about the selection elements. So coming into Station F, I mean, it sounds like a lot, 1,000 startups, but actually we get so many more applicants that we really have to be selective. We're picking roughly mm-hmm. 10% or less of companies every year. But then once they're here, what does that experience look like? And that's where we thought probably you have companies that want to uh, work with different corporates. So we have like, that's how we picked, you know, Facebook is probably one of the most relevant actors to work with companies that are interested in data, Microsoft for everything that's artificial intelligence. So we kind of had this strategy of picking 
the best partner for those different topics that we wanted to address. Um, we had some different universities as well, because we thought this is really where a lot of the great talent is coming from. So some of the best business and engineering schools, but not only, we also have some research institutions and then some kind of, there's a program that kind of regroups a number of different, uh, types of schools. So you really have a diverse, eclectic background of, of students coming and building mm-hmm. companies. Um, and then we also had the third group that's really, uh, you know, startup organizations, but these are groups like Entrepreneur First, which is probably the leader in talent investing um, with a very radically different model. So we have, you know, we really wanted to make sure that if you're a company looking for a program, whatever your need be, whatever your sector, your stage of development, if you want to pay, give equity, go to a program for free, you can find that at Station F. And so that's really kind of how we put the whole thing together. So so how can, you know, like becoming like we specifically uh, right now, how can startups apply for Station F and what are your criterias for selecting them? So all of the programs, we have 30 programs and they all do their own selection. Um, it's all on mm-hmm. the same website. So stationf.co is the kind of the central location where you can see all the programs mm-hmm. and apply to all of them. Um, but each program will you know, look at its own criteria. And I think a lot of the programs tend to be kind of in the seed pre-seed stage. So we tend to look at some generic stuff that tends to be the same for those programs. It will be, um, is your team full-time? Do you have a working prototype? Is there some traction? Um, do you have the technical experience in-house or have you outsourced it? Like we'll look at some of those different elements. Um, but then actually for a lot of the programs, there's additional experts, uh, they can be entrepreneurs or investors or industry experts that will actually validate um, the quality of the business and the idea that they're working on. So for example, my team runs two programs, the Founders Program and the Fighters Program. Founders Mm -hmm. Program is for early stage companies, all sectors, and Fighters is for underprivileged uh, entrepreneurs. But for the Founders Program, um, we do the first screening internally, so all the kind of basic criteria I just meant, but the actual validation of which companies are getting picked We have over a hundred entrepreneurs in, I think it's like 20 countries around the world. They're the ones looking at the different applications and picking who comes to Station F. Now we're coming to the second part of our podcast, which is our Bavarian Beer Garden break. Uh, since we are a Bavarian conference, we want to bring at least some of the Oktoberfest spirit to this podcast, even virtually. Obviously, Oktoberfest did not happen this year, but this is actually the part where we enjoy a zip of good old Bavarian beer, uh, at least virtually, to loosen our tongues and talk about more personal stuff. So, Roxanne, what do we drink to? I was going to say, it's like 10 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> What should we drink to? I think we should drink to innovation. I think this is an incredible time for innovation. So why not drink to it? (laughs) (laughs) Cheers to that. Awesome. If you could have a beer at Oktoberfest or a wine, if you prefer a wine, uh, with any person, dead or alive, who uh, would it be? Oh, my God. What a good question. But I don't even know what to say. Um, If I could have a beer with anyone... You know, the only person, this is so weird. I don't even know why he comes to mind. Um, I'm going to say John Lennon because he's either dead or alive. And I think it was recently the anniversary of his his death, unfortunately. Um, And he's just someone that I always found very inspirational and talented. And he lived in a period that I find just very 
um, just very interesting. And so I think that's probably who I would pick to have beer with today. <laughs> but but great great answer. Um, and I also want to learn more about how you've become involved as uh, the director of Station uh, F, uh, which uh, for our audience out there that's not familiar with his story is an initiative launched by French billionaire Xavier Niel, best known as the founder of the French internet service provider and mobile operator ER Trading under the free brand and co-owner of Le Monde, which is a French newspaper. And Station F was founded, as you mentioned earlier, in uh, 2016. So how did you become involved with this project? Yeah, the story of how I got involved is kind of, it's very random. Um, so I was actually working for TechCrunch uh, when I first moved to France. And I had right. gone to a conference at Microsoft uh, when Steve Ballmer had been in Paris. So he was he was still CEO back then. Um, and there was a whole bunch of, you know, incredible entrepreneurs. And, and Xavier had been invited to this event as well. Um, and before I was leaving, someone said, well, would you like to meet him? And I just thought, God, why would he ever want to meet me? Um, but he actually told me, oh, I've read your articles and you're the girl who writes for TechCrunch. And I totally thought he was just pulling my leg. Um, but we stayed in touch. And I think it was maybe three years later, I got an email from him, like out of the blue, saying, do you have trouble with jet lag? And I just thought, God, this is so weird. <laughs> like, what is, what is he trying mm. to ask me? But actually, he told me very quickly he had this project where he wanted to put, you know, 1,000 startups in this space. And, you know, he doesn't really know yet what that looks like. And could I visit some startup spaces around the world and just kind of give him some ideas? And so mm -hmm. I actually told him, you know, I'm working at the time, it, would, it was three years later, so I was no longer at TechCrunch. I was at Microsoft uh, by then. And I told him, look, I, I won't have time to go visit tons of countries for you, but I'm actually in Silicon Valley right now. I'm coming back to Europe. I can do maybe a few more countries. And so it kind of developed into this discussion of what the space should look like, what it should have. Um, and it was just kind of very casual at first, but then he invited me to meet the architects. And that's where I thought, well, this is getting kind of weird because I have no <laughs> it's value. Serious. <laughs> I was like, well, I have no value. I don't even understand half the stuff they're talking about. Um, yeah. And so from there, he kind of just told me, well, look, if you like this project, tell me what you want to do. And I told him, I want to do everything. And that's pretty much where it went from there. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting story. So as you mentioned, uh, you were born in Silicon Valley and in Palo Alto, which is a very small, uh, interesting town uh, in, in California next to Stanford. We just talked about it. You began blogging about tech and you were hired as an editor uh, of TechCrunch's French uh, website. You also worked, you, you, you did a lot of different things, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, you also worked in comms for two startups in the early 2000s and then you joined Microsoft in 2012 to design and run its setup programs. How did this diverse background help you with your work uh, in the startup world today? Um, yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, it's funny. I, I didn't actually, I grew up in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, which I would not personally describe as a super interesting place, um, given that yeah, I left. Nobody, <laughs> nobody who's been there would do that. No, poor so Palo Alto. So boring. I, I still have really? a soft spot for Palo Alto. Um, you, but, you, still, you still have what? I still have a soft spot in my heart for Palo Alto. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, but I was going to, but you know, I, I was not actually uh, passionate of, by tech, even though we had kind of grown up surrounded by some of these companies. And, um, it was really, I had always kind of been fascinated by France. And one of my first jobs out of university was working, um, for the French government. I was supposed to go and convince American startups from Silicon Valley to open offices in France. And that's where I really discovered 
entrepreneurs and I discovered, you know, they're so creative and passionate and intelligent and uh, optimistic. And so I just thought, you know, I really want to be um, kind of surrounded by these guys. And, um, and so that's where really kind of my passion for, for startups came from. Um, and so I would say that what actually has probably, I, I mean, it, I never really imagined it would be a benefit, uh, but it has been, is actually in the French ecosystem, being a foreigner, especially, you know, as the ecosystem was being developed and being someone who came from the U.S., um, from Silicon Valley, somehow made me credible, which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> given that I had done nothing. Um, but I think that was actually something that, that turned out to be really beneficial. And that's why to a lot of people that ask me for, you know, career advice or whatever, I say, actually, you know, going and discovering a new ecosystem, having contacts, um, you know, from around the world, from different locations, having a different perspective um, can really differentiate your profile. Um, and that's, that's what I experienced. Maybe it's also because you actually can speak English. You know? <laughs> oh, that is mean. That is so mean. No, the French actually speak very good English. At Station F, we speak English. We all speak English. I know, I know, I know. So, you know, I just had my own experience with, with French people. And, you know, what they describe as English is something. But, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, I, it's I, I'm not serious. I'm just joking here. But how was it, how was it growing up in, in Palo Alto? Uh, and, you know, did your parents work in tech? So, so talk about like, you know, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my dad definitely worked in tech. My dad, I think I was 12 on a Sunday and he was like, come, I want to show you how to build a computer. And I think I cried like instantly. Um, so, yeah, my parents, they, they, they definitely love tech, uh, but I didn't. Um, but growing up in Palo Alto, I mean, it was I, I, it's funny. It's, it's the odd question for me because I think I really didn't have a point of comparison. I just assumed that everybody kind of grows up surrounded by these same topics and kind of in a similar way. I just thought as, you know, all American cities and towns are like this. Um, and I think it wasn't until much later that I realized um, we're really kind of in a, a, a very unique location. Interesting. Um, and, you know, right now you also become, you know, besides working at, at Station F, you become became an angel investor uh, yourself as part of Atomico's angel investor program. What, what startups and what founders do you invest in and where do you look for the next inve investment targets? Yeah, the Atomico program was great because I think I would have never considered uh, myself an investor without that program. So um, that was, you know, a great way for me to kind of get over that. I, I actually had a fear of, you know, like, how do you pick a startup that you actually are willing to commit this money to? Um, and so I think uh, it took me a little, a little while to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to invest in. But actually everything I invested in, I think I feel... Um, I think already I have to be kind of impressed by the, the team and the founders uh, to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Um, but I also think I have to feel like I can make a contribution. I understand what they're talking about. I, you know, have some contacts or networks or some knowledge that I can share with them to benefit them some way. Um, and then actually what I ended up doing with the Atomico uh, investments that I made, it was more of a, I wanted to kind of test some different teams and topics. And, um, so, you know, they've come to me, the, the investment deals have come to me through different channels. Um, the teams are at different stages of development. The teams have, you know, different types of experience. They're working on very kind of 
very different industries, actually. So I think it was probably someone told me your portfolio mm-hmm. is the most eclectic of all the different uh, <laughs> um, angels from that cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the great thing about it was that program lasted one year. And since then, I've actually done a few personal investments, very tiny, tiny ones. But I, I'm happy because I feel like I kind of got over that um, that fear of, you know, actually being able to write that check and make that commitment to the, the different teams. Interesting. You, you mentioned earlier that you weren't interested in tech uh, in the early days and that you cried when your father showed you a computer. Um, so, so how did you develop your interest for, for the topic and, and the area? I think it really came from when I was trying to convince those American uh, Silicon Valley-based companies to open offices in France. And literally, okay. I would I would go, I would have to like, you know, go have meetings with them and ask them, you know, what are you working on? Uh, are you, do you have a European development strategy? Are you considering, you know, what countries are you considering? It's France on that mm-hmm. list. Maybe it should be. People thought I was crazy. Um, but I think that was also when I really got to see firsthand, uh, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the, the spirit of entrepreneurs. And I feel it's actually a very unique spirit that you probably don't find in every industry. Um, these mm-hmm. people that are just so creative and really looking for opportunities and building something. And I think I was more than being attracted to the tech. I was really attracted to the innovation aspect of it. The fact that these are oftentimes very new ideas, very new ways of doing things, something totally creative. Um, and I think that was the part that really kind of attracted me. Right. And We, we talked about the many roles that you uh, had in the ecosystem and one was obviously uh, being an advisor um, of the European Commission, um, the European Innovation Council. Um, you know, and uh, you know, since regulation is a big issue for, for startups in terms of enabling regulation, um, what do you think is missing uh, or what do you think can be improved um, in, in the European uh, startup uh, scene? Uh, what can politicians do to help uh, young founders? That is a huge question. Um, right. Actually, the, so the EIC was not necessarily about regulation, but it was a lot more about, because actually the, the European Commission has a ton of funding that uh, no startups go after because they think it's too painful or oftentimes they don't even know it exists. So really mm-hmm. our job was to kind of rethink about some of these funding schemes and how we can make them more relevant, more accessible, and actually target those technologies and those companies that we really want to benefit from that funding. Mm. So that was really what we worked on. Now, if we actually want to think about um, all the regulations that there are for you know all of Europe and all the areas that we have to improve, on one hand, I do think that oftentimes Europe has this reputation of having a lot of red tape and being very scary and we can't innovate here like we do elsewhere and you know all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think we're seeing a bit of a shift uh, in the global ecosystem. Uh, we didn't have this consciousness a few years ago of how important regulation is. And we're mm. starting to see it with some of the you know, issues, especially in the U.S., with the elections, with the fake news, with all that stuff that's going on. Right. Um, and yeah. so I actually have to say that I think Europe, in some respects, has a very healthy attitude with regards to regulation. Um, as much as I want companies to have freedom to innovate and to develop things um, that they want to do, I really think they need to do it responsibly. Um, and so that's, I think, uh, that's my position. doesn't necessarily answer specifically the question, but in the big scheme of things. I mean, it, it depends a little bit on, obviously, on what kind of regulation you are talking about, right? I mean, you mentioned that many startups don't want to apply for sponsoring or funding 
by the government and there's like there are specific reasons for that because it's as you mentioned it's it's complicated um, and and on the other hand there are many regulations that would not help startups but specifically talking about something around data protection which is obviously helpful on the one hand but can be a hurdle for many for many startups as well uh, who don't have uh, you know a big uh, law firm um, or like big law team um, on on site so so what's your advice for founders of how to deal with regulators and how to deal with the situation of being a startup in the European ecosystem? Well, I mean, it's a strategy that we've seen from a lot of companies. And it's oftentimes when companies get to a certain stage, they're actually able to hire people internally that deal kind of with institutional relations. And, and mm -hmm. they actually have those direct relationships with uh, the local governments, with, with the European governments. Um, so I think that's probably the strategy that I, that I see the most uh, used, but I really think it depends on the topic. <laughs> it depends on the industry right. you're in. It depends on how key are those issues to your business. Are they things that you can get around, you can innovate otherwise, or are they just really you know central to what you're doing and you can absolutely cannot do your business um, without them? But I think it is a risk because I mean, the government, uh, they can't, they obviously can't change it from one day to the next, but they can change things. And, you know, it can really impact a business in the same way that we used to talk about platform dependency, um, you know, developing everything just based around, you know, Google, Google platform, Facebook platform, what have you. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible mm -hmm. for companies to fall into some issues, the same types of issues with regulations, because one regulation can totally change everything for you. Um, and so I think it's really important for companies to also, you know, really mitigate that and keep that in mind as they as they start their businesses out. Coming to the next part uh, of the podcast, which is our toolbox, uh, where our guests share their top tips for founders and entrepreneurs with our listeners. Uh, if you would think about three tools that you find important for entrepreneurs, which three tools would that be? Number one. I really just think it's going to sound so basic, but communication is just so key. Um, being an effective communicator, whether it's somebody who's, you know, you're making a speech orally, whether you're making presentations, whether you're closing deals, you know, I just think there's so much that goes into being a good communicator. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that we see are good at giving the message, <laughs> not always good mm -hmm. at receiving the message. Um, so I think probably some of the best entrepreneurs that we see are also people who listen and ask questions uh, particularly well. And so I put all of that kind of into the communications bucket. Number two. Um, probably the second tool I would say is being able to surround themselves with excellent people. And I know that probably sounds very <laughs> like a common thing to say, but it's really so essential to building tomorrow's greatest companies. It's, it really comes down to the people. And I think people that, you know, they're, They don't know who they're hiring. They don't know how to hire. They don't know, you know, how to filter those candidates. They don't know how to onboard those candidates. Um, they don't know where to find them. You know, like there's so mm -hmm. much that goes into that. So, and it's not even just about building your team. It's also about building, you know, who's on your board, who are your investors, who are your customers. Number three. And probably the third thing, a tool, my gosh, I want to come up with like a platform or a tool. Um, 
this one, I'll make it much more like just a, a hard sell for a product that I love. <laughs> so, uh, we are huge fans of Notion at Station F. Obviously, we also use Slack internally, but I think, you know, picking mm-hmm. excellent internal communication tools with really good customer experiences, um, they will really facilitate internal communications for the team because people will love using them. Coming to the last part of our podcast, which is our either or game. And this is how it works. I give you two words and you have to have to choose one real quick and tell me why you've made that choice. And the first one is bits or pretzels. I'm going to say pretzels because it's near lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A croissants or a pancakes? Uh, croissants. I'm not a huge pancakes fan. Talking or listening? Listening. And I, I, do I have to develop this as a listening statement? <laughs> <laughs> Conquer or compromise? Conquer. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't, you know, I want to say that's maybe some kind of, that must be somehow related to my Persian genes. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> Tradition or transition? Transition. I'm going to say transition, even though I love uh, tradition, I absolutely do. But I think that there's some that need to be adapted to uh, in the right place, in the right time, in the right context. Follow or lead? Lead. And I just think it's very important to have a sense of one's own direction and to not always follow. Spending or saving? Oh, can, can we say investing? Can we not do that? <laughs> it's somewhere in the middle. No, I think um, it's probably probably wiser to save. It's more fun to spend. So I will pick uh, spend because I do think in some cases spending can also be wise uh, as with an investment. Numbers or ideas? Definitely ideas. I have never been a numbers person. I'm really sorry if my dad is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, singing in the shower or in the car? Um, neither. So I don't, I don't sing in the shower and I don't have a car. I don't have a car either. That's so funny. Nobody has a car anymore, <laughs> uh, but that's a different, that's a different podcast. Um, chaos or order? Wow. These are really hard. So the artist in me wants to say chaos, but actually I love order. I like, I adore order. So order. <laughs> Roxanne, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode again. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple or wherever you're listening. See you next week.